This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. On Wednesday, we continued to get reaction to the Ford government's announcement of an independent commission into the devastation caused by COVID-19 in long-term care. Opposition NDP leader Andrea Horvath continues to call for a full public inquiry rather than an independent commission. But what about those who are working in long-term care? Libby Snymer was joined by Miranda Ferrier, president of the Ontario Personal Support Workers Association, Donna Duncan, CEO of Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario. This has been an unprecedented tragedy, and we need to take a look at what has happened so that we can prevent anything from happening um, to this extent ever again. So we fully support the government's uh, announcement. And Donna? You know, before this started uh, in in early February, our association said that we we're facing a perfect storm uh, with a lot of structural and systemic issues in long-term care. And unfortunately, we, we now moved into this unimaginable tragedy. So we, we have called uh, for, for an inquiry, uh, a, 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 a commission, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we, we have to have a means of looking at and addressing our systemic issues. But what we would also say is we have a need to focus on immediate solutions to protect our residents and our frontline heroes right now. Uh, we know that this this pandemic is going to run for about 18 months, uh, especially if we don't find a vaccine. And uh, there are urgent, urgent uh, measures that we need to be taking today, uh, not, not just in September uh, when a commission starts. For us, what's most important is that this, what happened uh, so far during the pandemic is examined. Uh, but we don't also want to rehash things that we already have heard through the long-term care inquiry um, with the um, you know, after Elizabeth Wetlaufer uh, murdered those individuals in long-term care, we've already studied a lot of things to, you know, very, very carefully in long-term care. We know we need more staff. We know we need more funding. So we don't need to rehash those things. What we need this commission to look at is what happened in this pandemic. Uh, But we also, as Donna said, we need immediate action now. We cannot sit and wait for two years for a group to, you know, go through a whole long extended process. We need to have action now. By action, uh, Donna, do you mean funding? So uh, what, what I would say is we need to, uh, what we, we know we need more people. Uh, and in order to have more people, we need more supplies. So we need to make sure that long-term care continues to be prioritized for personal protective equipment for masks, gloves, gowns as we go forward. Uh, without those, we won't have people. Uh, we need to uh, continue with continuous testing and long-term care uh, as we move through the summer and into the fall. Uh, we know that we need to uh, make investments in interim measures in our existing buildings, especially where there are four bedrooms, uh, and uh, enhance our infection pre- prevention uh, and control, uh, and we need to expedite our capital program. So it's 
it's not as simple as saying we need funding, we need resources, we need partnerships, uh, we need to uh, act fast uh, to address these, these, these issues and make sure that, uh, you know, we're doing this in a concerted way. Miranda, so uh, is this type of commission that we heard about yesterday, is that, is that good enough from your point of view? I'm absolutely thrilled with that announcement. And, and I'll tell you why, Libby. We were a part of the inquiry uh, into Elizabeth Wetlawford, like uh, Lisa was in her organization. And it was a very intense, very long uh, inquiry that had a lot of great suggestions that came out of it. And I think that if we do another inquiry, it's going to be another two years before we see any changes on the front line in long-term care. We don't have that time to waste. Um, so having this, this independent commission, I think, will move things faster. We'll see change happen faster. And hopefully it will be good for everyone in these long-term care homes. Right now, your members are not allowed to work in multiple homes. Is that something that should be made permanent? And right now, I mean, it's the federal government topping up their money. But should those things be made permanent? We need to see more full-time positions uh, for personal support workers. We're talking about health care here. We're talking about the lives and the quality of life for our most senior and vulnerable population. You know, I don't think, you know, PFWs need to be able to work full-time in one home. I mean, the continuity of care would be incredible. Um, PSWs would have a an amazing, uh, you know, ability to work in one place, not have to travel all over the place. We could keep the contagions down because it's not just the pandemic or the COVID-19. We're also dealing with a bunch of other things, too, like the flu or the Norwalk virus, etc. I, I don't think that they should bring it back. I think that it should be PSWs only working in one long-term care home. But then they have to give them the hours and the full-time pay and the benefits. Miranda Ferrier, President of the Ontario Personal Support Workers Association, Donna Duncan, CEO of Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario. Hazel McCallion also joined Libby this week to talk about the Independent Commission. The former longtime Mississauga mayor and now chief elder officer at Rivera is fully in support of the process over a full public inquiry, which she said would be a complete waste of time because, in her words, long-term care needs immediate attention. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We've been hearing a lot about the plight of small business owners who've had to close their shops during the lockdown and cannot afford to pay their rent. Even Premier Doug Ford has weighed in, slamming what he calls greedy landlords. There's been a lack of enthusiasm for the federal government's commercial rent assistance program, which is designed to go through landlords. It would have the federal government cover 50% of the rent, tenants providing 25%, and the landlords covering the last 25%. On Wednesday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau re-announced the program with a start date for applications tomorrow, May 25th. So is it any better than when it was first unveiled three weeks ago? Libby asked that question of Toronto City Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam and Ryan Malo, Director of Provincial Affairs at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. There are uh, a fairly high number of landlords from, from our survey data at uh, at least 50% 
that have said, you know, they are they are uninterested in uh, taking part in this program. Um, and you have to remember that there's not a lot of incentive for them to join in if they don't want to. I mean, if they're not part of the program, they can still demand 100% of rent from their tenants as well. So um, that's why we're, we're looking to the federal government to expand the program for those uh, tenants whose landlords don't want to participate, get the funding right to the tenant um, so that they can use it to pay some of their rent. Um, and also, uh, we think it would help if we took evictions off the table and put a temporary halt to those uh, to help bring more landlords to the table and say, you know, this is this is the tenant you're dealing with. Let's see what our options are. Well, uh, I guess that's something that Kristen Wongtam would agree with, putting evictions on hold, right, Kristen? Absolutely, Libby. And uh, we have been asking for this uh, provincial measure that, that only the Premier can invoke under this emergency order, um, that we've been asking them to halt all commercial evictions. Um, it would actually incentivize landlords, I believe, uh, big commercial property owners to come to the table and to work with the tenants. Because uh, right now, what we're hearing from the, from the Premier is, uh, is a bit of, you know, a chest thumping that, you know, he doesn't, he, he thinks that landlords are greedy. Uh, but, you know, take that baton of the landlord's hand, um, pull, pull that, that, that power leverage away from them, uh, which is the, the commercial evictions, and then that compels them to work with their tenants. It compels them to the table and actually um, it allows people to sort of come to, uh, together to work together to find a resolution, which is what every order of government has been saying, is that they want the landlords to sit down with their tenants to find a path forward. Um, and uh, But if you put the power into the, the landlord's hands only, uh, there is very little um, incentive for them to take advantage of the CE. Uh, CRA program. Ryan, here's what has me scratching my head. Uh, so yes, I get that the numbers may not make sense for a lot of landlords, but if they don't take this up and you can't draw blood from a stone and their tenant has no money, it's not like at this point in our economy that there are going to be a lot of other potential tenants lined up to pay full price. Yeah, and, and I'd absolutely agree with that. And we, we've heard the same sentiment from governments and, and that sort of being the, the carrot to bring a landlord to the table. Um, but that being said, it, it hasn't stopped evictions from happening. I mean, we've seen all over the city of Toronto and in some cases some, some very well-established and, and long-standing businesses uh, be forced to close up shop because of this. And again, it's, it's, it's going to vary case by case, but there are landlords out there that feel that that's the right move. Maybe they think that you know, reopening will happen quick enough that they, they may be able to get a tenant in there. Uh, maybe they think that it'll just wind up costing them less in the short term. Um, but fact of the matter is, as, as little sense as it, it seems to make, uh, and I, I agree with the logic, um, we are still seeing it, it happen. There are evictions happening, and we do, uh, as the councillor said, we do need the province to step in to put a halt to that. Kristen Wongtam. I mean, I've spoken to a number of landlords. I've actually been calling the commercial property owners in my community, uh, number one, introducing them to the programs. I've been explaining what the program looks like. I've been letting them know that the, the application forms are coming up very shortly. Um, I've, I've told them that the City of Toronto has established a business support center uh, whose, whose sole job is to, to help commercial operators uh, navigate the myriad of different government programs, which seems to be announced almost daily. Um, and what I've heard from the, the landlords is 
I'm going to look into it. Um, I, I'll think about it. Uh, there is no wild enthusiasm. I've yet to speak to one single property owner that is wildly enthusiastic about the federal programs. Um, but I know that um, they would probably be much more enthusiastic recognizing that, uh, um, you know, 75 cents on the dollar is better than nothing. But what they think they might get, I, I still think that it's, it's kind of a, a trump card that they're holding, um, is that they still think that they can get more if they just wait. Uh-huh. Um, and so what Ryan has said, you know, in terms of placing the onus onto property owners to then, you know, apply for the benefit and then pass that through the tenant, we are seeing right away that just doesn't work. But at the same time, we cannot let Premier Ford off the hook. Um, and I'm not saying this because it's a partisan issue. I'm saying this because business owners are telling me that they are going to lose their life savings. Families will collapse. Marriages will break down. They, all they need is a fighting chance. And right now there's a program that they think that could help them because there is some fairness to the program. Everybody gets to, to, to take a haircut just to make it all work. But in order for that to work, they need the, co- the landlords to cooperate. And right now, the landlords just don't seem to have en- enough incentive to cooperate. Toronto City Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam and Ryan Malo, Director of Provincial Affairs at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. On Thursday, Libby asked two experts to check out her mask-donning technique on our streaming video at zoomerradio.ca. She then asked them for a critique, as we all get used to the idea that we should wear a mask in public where physical distancing is not possible. Here are Dr. Ray Dionandon, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Dr. Alan Vaisman, epidemiologist with the University Health Network. The important pieces that you did was to make sure that you sanitized your hands before bringing them to your head and neck and before touching the mask. Touching the ear loops instead of touching the actual front of the mask is correct. And then if you place it down on a surface that's clean and dry, that's the right thing to do with the uh, part of the mask. Uh, I mean, generally speaking, you want to make sure that you contaminate the part of the mask that's facing your face. So you, you may want to put the, the mask uh, face down instead uh, with the part exposed to the outside down so that uh, you're not going to be putting that mask back on with a contaminated side towards you. In general, though, the masks should be discarded after they're used. That's the general recommendation uh, for a disposable mask. Why can't I reuse that mask if I only had it on for a bit? Uh, so it's a good question. It, you know, before COVID, we would never reuse disposable masks. But uh, now during COVID, depending on the setting we're speaking about, specifically in healthcare settings, we, we are having the masks reused or used for an extended period of time uh, based on the availability of the masks. Certainly if we're talking about certain other kinds that are less available to the public or maybe the public has less access to it, then it can be safely reused. It just needs to be very carefully done, and the public needs to be educated about how that how that should be done before they uh, reuse masks that are otherwise should be disposed of. Dr. Dionandon, is this a surgical mask? Is this what they call a surgical mask? It, it looks like one. I can't be uh, certain unless I examine it. But yeah, uh, but most of the uh, general population will likely be using a homemade cloth mask, which is of somewhat lesser quality in the sense that the fiber width will be greater. But it's important to keep in mind that the reason that we're wearing these masks isn't to protect ourselves necessarily, it's to protect other people. 
So the quality of the mask is less important when we consider this from a population perspective. What we're trying to do is to prevent an asymptomatic sick person from unknowingly broadcasting the virus to others. So any quality mask will be useful in that respect. The guidance that I've read with a cloth mask is that you can only wear it once and then you have to wash it and wait till it dries and all of that. And my question is, uh, so for instance, we see the prime minister wearing a mask. He wears the mask. He walks out of his house or into parliament. Then he takes it off. Uh, are you telling me that he probably next time he puts it back on, wears another, gets another mask? I think that's the ideal scenario, but let's be honest here. That's unlikely to be convenient or possible for most people. So we don't want to be, in my opinion, um, overly stringent with these extreme hygiene controls if it's not possible to maintain them. The important part here is that if enough people wear masks enough of the time, the population rate of transmission goes down. This is not about protecting ourselves individually. It's about you know, an aggregate reducing the transmission rate. So if you want to reuse your mask throughout the day, it's not ideal, but you can, but try to wash it every day if you can. Doctors, uh, how do you get the public health message to people who think that all of this is infringing on their rights? Um, I think we need to People need to understand that the other side of rights is responsibilities. And if we have the freedom in society to do what we choose, that freedom must come with the understanding that what we choose impacts others. I would like for things not to be mandatory, and I would like for people to understand why it is right to act responsibly. You have the right not to ride public transit if you don't want to. But if you do ride public transit, you probably should wear a mask. So as this unfolds, we're going to see a greater tension between individual rights and the rights of the public to be safe from individuals. I'm not sure how we navigate that appropriately, but one path is that we in public health have to press that message better. This is about protecting other people, protecting your elderly, your your children, your, your parents. And I think that's the way to sell the message. We remember at the beginning of the pandemic, young people were a little kind of uh, lackadaisical about this. Do you have a view of that before we wrap up? Yeah, I'll go first. This is a major concern of mine because young people will probably be the biggest transmitters of the disease going forward and might be the cause of the second wave. So it's more important than ever before for the youth to get on board with protecting everybody else. And that means hopefully wearing a mask to prevent transmission because they're likely to be asymptomatic carriers. Dr. Ray Dionandon, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Dr. Alan Vaisman, epidemiologist at the University Health Network. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. The weather's become really nice, and with it, the trees and flowers are filling in, which also means it's allergy season. If allergies are making you cough and sneeze, people around you might think you have COVID-19. To eliminate any confusion, Libby welcomed to the show on Thursday, Billy Chung, Executive Director, Pharmacy, Marketing and Professional Affairs of PharmaSave Ontario. You know, it's an interesting time because, you know, the fast number of months that people are really watching symptoms and they're hearing all these different symptoms that uh, are COVID related. And now we got an allergy season coming up where other symptoms can come up and there's a little bit of uh, confusion out there, overlap. And uh, it's an opportunity to really just make sure people know the differences between uh, the both and what to expect, right? I think the, the key is understanding 
the symptoms of each. Now, if I were to run through some of the COVID ones, and I think you mentioned some, but the, the big ones that people hear about are cough, uh, fever, difficulty breathing. Those are some of the main ones that uh, people are aware of, but we're also seeing, and the data is very broad and it's variable, and I think everybody's still learning, but we also know that COVID can also uh, include sore throat, uh, runny nose, uh, stomach symptoms, headache, dizziness. I'd probably say the one that um, uh, people are just hypersensitive over is obviously, you know, both of them are respiratory, but uh, uh, when you look at an allergy a situation, you have the runny nose, and that's one of the symptoms you might have seen with uh, with COVID. However, there's other symptoms that aren't COVID-related. So, example being, you mentioned sneezing. That is not one that we're seeing very much of at all in terms of the data uh, related to COVID. So, sneezing is a telltale sign that it may, it's, it's potentially not a COVID situation. Nasal congestion, where you have difficulty breathing from the nose, so different than difficulty breathing from your lungs, right? So that's another uh, variation. Uh, And then the itchy, watery eyes, red swollen eyes, those are other things to uh, be aware of that are very allergy-specific. And so when when people start experiencing symptoms this time of year, you really have to associate uh, the overall, what is the kind of the group of the symptoms you're experiencing. But some of those, like you're talking about a, a runny nose can be COVID related. I mean, personally, mm-hmm. I've got a runny nose 365 days a year. So it, <laughs> it doesn't worry me, though, if somebody sees me uh, using a tissue, uh, they might get upset. It, it's one of those things where I think everybody's hypersensitive around people who are sick around them, right? And uh, obviously, you know what, when anybody is quote-unquote, sick with an infection you're trying to avoid and you, you don't want to pass it along. Allergies is something that's not contagious, right? So uh, I think uh, hopefully people will, will hear and understand that there are uh, a dif- there's a difference out there and uh, that not everybody with a symptom is, def- is potentially a COVID risk, if that makes sense. So I, I strongly encourage people to look at the assessments uh, online that are available for when uh, people may be questioning whether this is COVID or not, because they do walk you through a process. And, you know, something we did with the pharmacy website is put together a portal, per se, of all the different links of all the various assessments from across the provinces, because there are some variances from one province to another. Um, but it, it, it'll walk you through what symptoms are you experiencing now? How long have you had them? They ask you some very critical questions to help to define whether you should be going to get tested or concerned or whether, hey, you know what? This is likely not something related, if that makes sense. You know, it's interesting. In the previous segment, we were talking about masks and the wearing of masks. Mm-hmm. And if yeah. you're having allergy symptoms, that's going to make the mask pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, I, and I suffer from allergies just like you. And uh, you think about it, you're not supposed to touch your face, you know, like your mouth, your nose, your eyes. But when you think about your allergy symptoms, and, and for people with allergies, you know, you, you when you're sneezing, you, you might be used to covering up your face or your itchy nose or, you know, eyes being very itchy. And it's, I think this season might be a lot more challenging for people. I think the, the key thing is the, the hand washing. And uh, for people with allergies, just uh, if you're able to regularly wash your hands to just minimize that risk, because you're probably inevitably going to at least make some facial contact because of some of your allergy symptoms. Billy, what are you leaving us with? I, I hope everybody stays healthy, uh, stays well. Follow 
public health uh, advisements, keep keep in touch with that. And lastly, is that your pharmacist is available. They're here to su- help and support. And uh, so make sure that you stay in touch with them and, and, and don't be afraid in terms of if you need your medications, make sure you speak to them about it, whether it's for your allergies or asthma or anything else. Billy Chung, Executive Director, Pharmacy Marketing and Professional Affairs of Pharmasave Ontario. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jim in Pickering, who phoned with his suggestions for clothing stores to avoid having shoppers trying on the clothes while we're still in the pandemic. Well, you have a sample product there. So it could be a jacket in the clothing store, a jacket or a shirt or something of that nature. And and you have one there just for sizing, not the general merchandise that is for sale. And so that you could bring that out and have them try it. And then that's isolated. So you deal with that how, however you choose. And with the hardware, yes, you have a sample product. If you have to have the feel of the tool, it's that sample product. And then it is wiped down carefully after. But when I go to a store, I know my size. But if you buy a different brand, it may not be the same. So you have to take out all the little pins, unbutton all those buttons, and da-da-da. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail, 416-367-9636. That's 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.